This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I'd like to uh, take this opportunity to uh, introduce my colleague, Dr. David Gere, from the School of Art and Architecture here at UCLA. And one of the things that happens is when you go from the David Geffen School of Medicine through the School of Art and Architecture, you realize you're not in the School of Medicine anymore, <laughs> which is a good thing. And so we've had, just had a very medical and a very disruptive talk, and David does very disruptive things. Can you just take a few minutes, talk about the sex squad, and talk about what this evening's event will be? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you. Uh, I didn't know that this was going to appear just at this moment, but, you know, we're all being disruptive today. <laughs> it's our job. Um, actually, the, the main disruption that I'm so appreciating is even the recognition that it isn't only medicine, it isn't only uh, public health, it isn't only public policy that contributes to our work in global health, that the arts are, are very much a part of that as well. And so even just that basic recognition is very meaningful to, to me at this point in the program. The Sex Squad uh, was invented from some fantastic sources. Actually, one of them South African, so I, I thought I would mention that in relation to uh, the, the, this morning's talk. The performance artist Peter Dirk Ace, who's a fantastic and disruptive presence in South Africa, sometimes as a drag queen, sometimes as a performance artist, moves from school to school presenting a program about sexual health education that uh, is the inspiration for what we have made here. He came and taught a workshop to us at UCLA, and out of it came a program which is intended to uh, address all of the taboos, all the things that we think we can't talk about, but of course we can. And it's only when we can that we are involved in the kind of deep education that we, we think is most important. So the program tonight is an opportunity to see the, the UCLA Sex Squad, but even more importantly, the offshoots of it, which have just formed in the past two years, where the high schools that we're reaching with the program are now creating their own sex squads, so that, in fact, it is true peer-to-peer -peer education. The material that they have made is going to be shown tonight for the very first time. Uh, several high schools, several different programs uh, throughout the city. Uh, it is the first ever high school sex squad festival. <laughs> And so we're inviting you to come. It's uh, from 7 to 9 p.m. tonight down below. It's a five-minute walk, actually a lovely walk downhill, but this wonderful program has provided buses because we don't want you to have to exercise too much, you know. That's not a, not a good idea. It is Los Angeles. So the, the shuttle buses will be available starting from 5.30. It only takes a minute to get down there. They're going to rotate back and forth, and we hope that you'll come. There are enough seats. It's in an auditorium of some size. So there are enough seats for anyone who would like to come and bring your friends as well. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you. We, we thought this year we would uh, try something new, and that is to have a student plenary. And so we put out a call... And we asked students actually not only to give us their idea, but actually to write out their plenary. And then there was a live competition. We did it via Skype, but we asked each of the students to read their plenary. So I'm pleased to present the winner and uh, ask her to deliver to you her thoughts. And the topic of her talk is body image in Venezuela, 
And the speaker is Rachel Murnoff, who is an undergraduate student here at UCLA. Rachel, will you please come forward? All right, so before I begin, I'd like to thank the UC Global Health Institute for inviting me to come speak here today. Um, I know that it's rare for students, especially undergraduate freshmen, to be invited to present in a space like this, and I'm very grateful to be here. Um, additionally, I want to thank the UCLA Blum Center, which supported the Poverty and Health in Latin America freshman cluster that I took earlier this year, and which was taught by Dr. Michael Rodriguez and Dr. Stephen Commons, um, both of whom were very inspiring professors, and if it wasn't for the hard work and dedication of them to our class, I wouldn't be here today. Body Image in Venezuela. Osmel Sousa, president of Organización Miss Venezuela, articulates clearly what Venezuelan culture tells its woman every day. I say that inner beauty does not exist. That's something that unpretty women invented to justify themselves. The girls don't have to be completely natural. They have to be beautiful. But where that beauty comes from does not matter. In 2013, 231,742 surgical and 291,388 non-surgical cosmetic procedures were performed in Venezuela, giving the country a rank of eight worldwide in terms of total aesthetic procedures performed, in comparison to a population size that ranks 46th. Venezuela's history of Miss Universe champions and petroleum investments has produced a culture ingrained with prejudice, encouraging women and girls to modify their bodies in order to improve their quality of life. The media features blunt statements about the inferiority of racial minorities while advertising for procedures that promise to alter ethnic characteristics. Acknowledging the complex political, social, economic, and racial factors contributing to this reality, as well as the Venezuelan government's unsuccessful efforts to combat the problem, I propose a multi-step response that calls for the development of a Ministry of Women, which would instigate a series of policy changes geared toward female empowerment. Studies indicate that women are internalizing the beauty standards imposed upon them. 16% of women who identified as Blanca, mostly possessing European features, and 16% who identified as Morena, medium to dark skin with straight or wavy hair, expressed a strong desire to have rhinoplasty, while 50% of those who identified as Negro, medium to dark skin with curly hair, wanted the procedure. The procedures themselves are invasive and dangerous, often occurring in contaminated hospitals with supply shortages and uncertified physicians. There is no definitive reason why women are choosing to take such risks, but researchers suggest that a combination of colonialism, 
restrictive immigration policies that attempted to increase the amount of white people in the region, and European education of Venezuelan doctors since residency programs were not established in Venezuela until the 1960s, are responsible for this reality. Responses to the issue must be multifaceted, taking into consideration the social determinants of health model and their response to deeply written inequities, which are central to the unhealthy idealization of Western facial features and the supermodel body type. Class, race, and gender in particular are at the forefront of this topic. Gulbas asserts this by arguing that women see their bodies as cultural capital, Women of color experience such brutal discrimination that they feel they must change their physical features in order to elevate their social status. Therefore, giving these women an alternative to improving their living standards is vital to combating such widespread feelings of inadequacy. Government-sponsored programs that seek to empower impoverished women of color have been implemented in Venezuela in the past, but are in need of improvement. Under the Chavez administration, for example, Mission Vuelvan Caras was established in 2004 to encourage unemployed women to form cooperatives and businesses through tax breaks and credit programs. However, cooperatives developed using these funds were not always successful. A cooperative named Mudabar was initially run by about 200 women, but the economic recession has now reduced the company to 42 people. Though this particular program was not entirely successful, its mission has played a very significant role in dealing with the body image crisis. Kathy Davis of the Paris program describes plastic surgery as a symptom of oppression, an act of empowerment, all in one. Therefore, by providing another means for women to feel empowered, plastic surgery would likely become less popular. My response to the poor body image standards imposed on Venezuelan society focuses on empowerment and women's rights through the institution of a ministry of women, the majority of which would consist of female politicians. After the successful implementation of the ministry over the course of 20 years, as well as adding it to the constitution and allocating funds for its research and projects, the Venezuelan ministry should amend its Mission Vuelvan Caras so that it includes long-term funding for feminist nonprofit organizations in order to ensure their sustainability. Applicants would apply to Mission Vuelvan Caras through the Ministry of Women, which would include a five-person majority female application committee. Accepted applicants would be required to undergo a year-long training program that includes nonprofit marketing and financing courses. Reforming and designing the new program should take approximately 15 years. The program and the ministry would continue to grow and allow for the integration of new programs in response to the success and failures of past strategies. New ideas might include a networking system for organizations to communicate with one another, governmental advisors appointed to counsel the organizations, and improved health education programs in public schools. Feminist organizations should look to coalition building models of institutions like WomenLink, a feminist nonprofit in South Korea that teaches young girls about the harms of lookism or the obsession with appearances through the production of television shows, magazines, and videos. Consultation should be continuous and could potentially be made easier by the networking system. Focus should ultimately be placed on oppressed populations that are vulnerable to Venezuelan beauty standards. Additionally, these nonprofits in the government 
must collaborate by taking part in discussion panels on scaling up nonprofits in order to yield success. This collaboration should ultimately lead to a reduction in media censorship so that organizations can freely publicize research, programs, etc. Such reform would likely occur within 50 years. Acknowledging the nature of Venezuela's body image crisis, this proposal seeks to modify existing policy while slowly integrating new governmental programs by fostering relationships with nonprofits. Women of color in Venezuela have been convinced of their inferiority to the point that they feel their only route to success is through dangerous procedures that force them to sacrifice their health and basic living standards. The problems illustrated in this proposal, of course, are ultimately issues of human rights and must be viewed as such by responders. Thank you so much. Now we would like to announce the winners of the um, student uh, video contest and we will show uh, their videos. So we will show the three videos and then ask the winners to come up uh, uh, to, to the stage uh, to be acknowledged. So in third place, Rachel Sklar, an MPH student from UC Berkeley, with team members uh, Sharadra Prasada, a PhD student in public health, and the title of their video is Into the Pit, please. What is sanitation really about? Is it just about a safe place to do our business? Or is it also about what happens to our waste after we relieve ourselves? When toilets are connected to a sewer line, it is easy to flush and forget where our poop is going. But that luxury is elusive to one-third of the population of this world. Close to 2.5 billion people lack access to adequate sanitation facilities. Over a billion among us defecate in open and an equal number of people use toilets that are not connected to sewers. What happens to all their waste? Part of this waste is ending up in the fields where children play and streams that communities drink from. Every 20 seconds, we are losing a child to diarrheal illnesses. Each gram of feces is loaded with millions of pathogenic bacteria and viruses. Hence, the separation of humans from their waste has become a priority. Several international agencies have been investing in the construction of new toilets that are connected to pits or septic tanks. But what happens when these pits fill up? Who empties them? Where is this waste taken to? Once these toilets are full, households in most cases hire manual emptiers who dive into the dark depths of toxic, pathogenic waste only to dump them in streams or ditches in the same community. This is dangerous for everyone. The work of emptying the pits and septic tanks is undertaken by society's most marginalized people. Their tools are limited but health risks are abundant. Emptiers often use their bare hands. Sharp objects such as pieces of metal, nails and broken bottles pierce their skin and expose their fresh wounds to pathogenic sludge. They do what they can to get the job done and get their menial pay. The community forces them to work at night. 
No one should be inconvenienced by seeing the latrine digger carrying around buckets of crap. They are stigmatized within their own communities. They are threatened. Their families are shunned. They are coerced into doing jobs that barely pay anything for the conditions they endure. Yet, social and financial compulsions keep these workers coming back for more despite the gut-wrenching sights and putrid stenches. In the depths of uncomfortably hot pits, through the nausea, the vomiting, headaches, stomach aches, skin rashes, diarrhea and dysentery, cancer feeds on their body and society preys on their dignity. Night after night, they carry on numbing themselves with drugs, tobacco and alcohol. How else can the Valmiki community in India scoop the human waste from dry latrines? How else can the emptiers in Kenya jump into pits naked and empty the waste barehanded? Even where sewers exist, the plight and risks sanitary workers are exposed to are not much different. The pits that are meant to separate people from their contagious wastes are serviced by others who dive into them barehanded, unprotected, and inebriated. The latrines that are safeguarding the health of the majority are also exposing a minority to fatal health risks. There is no clear solution yet, but let us begin by acknowledging the fact that there are those among us who die to keep us clean. The second place team was led by Jaime Arredondo Sanchez Lira, PhD student in global public health at UC San Diego, with team members Patricia Gonzalez Zuniga, Claudia Raful Lera, Elizabeth Friedman, and Eddie Lumbeche. Their video, The Forgotten Clinica de Bordeaux. Today uh, we are doing a wound clinic down here in the canal, which is the right the border between Mexico and the United States. Approximately there's like a thousand people living in the canal. The canal is long. It stretches from what is the border at the end all the way until East Tijuana. We meet each other at the trolley station in San Isidro. We park our cars and we walk. Uh, we walk across uh, what is the other side of this canal that is the border with Mexico and the United States. Then you take that bridge over there which is known as El Chaparral and basically we come down through this area which is the only entrance on this side of the canal and we get in a van with six people and we put the mobile clinic up. So my name is Jaime Redondo. I'm a doctoral student of uh, global health, third year at the University of California, San Diego and also at San Diego State University. Population here have difficulties getting access to health. Barriers to health are either afraid of police getting out of here and getting picked up. They don't have the money, they don't have IDs, or they get to the health clinics around the city and they are bounced back because of the way that they look. Many of them are deportees and many of the cases are infectious diseases, flu, cuts on their bodies. Some of them will ask us from their own will uh, to have HIV tests done right here at the site. 
and then many of them will even bring their recipes and they tell us this is what they told me can you please certify this is what I have. Soy la doctora Patricia González Zúñiga, soy una médica nacida en Tijuana. La semana trabajo en la Universidad de California en San Diego eh, y bueno, decidimos como nuestro trabajo es atender a la población. La gente en general los ve como gente eh, malvivientes, viciosos, eh, gente que no son, que quieren estar aquí, gente que perdió sus identificaciones que no tiene acceso a servicios de salud y tratamos de que vuelvan a encontrar la confianza a ser atendidos. Empezamos aquí con una mesa y empezamos este, atendiéndoles. Yo vine la primera vez sola, ahora gracias a Dios ya tenemos este, más voluntarios. Esto pues queremos que crezca, queremos a, a, a apoyarlos para que tengan una mejor eh, calidad de vida, que ellos sientan que son personas que importan, que son seres humanos y que son importantes para reintegrarse a la sociedad, eh, pero que están muy olvidados. And the first place winner is a master's student of global health sciences at UC San Francisco, Obietze Nwana Nizuana, and the title of his video, Global Health, My Voice. six months experience as a physician, I left home to take responsibility of a region with 40,000 people, only to meet such levels of poverty and suffering that left me with questions how and why, to realize that even on clean water was a luxury in some parts of my country. These challenges opened my eyes to the problems of the underserved populations all over the world. And I was motivated to make a change in the society which reflected a global epidemic. And so, like a stone cast into the sea, I believed that I could generate a ripple that could touch the lives of millions. I started a foundation with a mandate to take health care to people who were affected by health disparities. Whether they are incarcerated in prison, in remote areas, or even in the comfort of their mother's wombs, we will go to them to promote and provide quality health care.
because we believe that every human being has a right to health to ensure that these little children have the best start in life. And through all my encounters, I began to see that global health was not just about giving sight to the poor blind people, but about giving sight to the rich so that they can see our plight. Join forces with one another and stand shoulder to shoulder with us and champion our cause. So I am inspired by the inequality in education which this little girl has to overcome to find a place on the global stage. By this table, which is an operating table in my country. Inspired by Gandhi, by Malala, by Nelson Madiba Mandela, by Martin Luther King, because they all have taught me the power of my voice. And through global health, my voice and the voices of millions of people who live in conditions of disparity will be heard. I would like to I would like to invite all of the filmmakers to please come to the stage and be acknowledged. Please come up. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.